and welcome to the Health Nuts podcast with certified holistic nutrition consultants, Mary Vance and Caitlin Weeks. Our goal is to dispel mainstream nutrition myths and bring you the best in holistic health and real food education. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Mary. How are you? Good. Um, just sitting here watching the rain outside, which is nice in the Bay Area where we need it, and getting some work done and excited for our guest today, Liz Wolf. And we're going to introduce her and talk all about her new book and various other topics of interest to everyone. But before we begin, I'll read our disclaimer and then we'll get into our nitty gritty. The only purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is no substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided with the understanding that it does not constitute medical advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your concerns with a licensed health care provider. Caitlin Weeks and Mary Vance assume no liability for any of your activities in connection with this podcast. And you can find Caitlin at grassfedgirl.com, and I'm at Mary Vance NC, like nutritionconsultant.com. So, what's uh, new with you, Caitlin? Oh, I was traveling a little bit back to my parents' house, and then um, back now in San Francisco, and raining so <laughs> that's um, a huge for everyone around here since we're having a really bad drought by the way for all of it, those of you across the united states and the world who are bored with possibly hearing about the weather but um i was i did our pot i put up the podcast we did last week with karen Sorensen about whole 30 mistakes sugar detox mistakes and um egg-free paleo cooking so Lots of ideas for non-egg breakfasts on that one. And I also did a post about seven ways to find motivation to exercise. So, you know, it's always hard every day, I guess. So I thought I would write about that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, I just put up actually a post on holistic nutrition for dogs because that's something I've been studying for... I don't know, almost 20 years now, actually, growing up on a farm, raising and training dogs and horses. I have dealt with my share of animals with digestive problems and numerous other health complaints that can totally be resolved by diet. I think, you know, we're just kind of now starting to make the connection between what we eat and our health, and the same obviously applies to our pets and, and animals that we raise. So that was a popular post. And then I did how to cook a perfect steak on the stove. Uh, If you don't have a grill, then it's super easy and really fast to cook a nice steak on the stove. So that's kind of what is new on my site. And you also have your gelatin treats book uh, on your site too as well, right? Yeah, I put that out like maybe a week ago and it's been selling really well. It's 30 gelatin treats. And you can, some of them, they all have, they all can be sugar-free or low-carb, or you can have a honey, and but they're all natural, and they use grass-fed gelatin. They're really fun for kids and for people who want, like, a fast breakfast to take on the go, stuff like that. Yeah, I've already referred it to several people, so uh, it's good to have that resource out there for sure. Mm-hmm. So why, why don't you tell us a little bit about... Liz and 
uh, her bio and why we chose to have her on today. And we'll welcome our, our guests. We're very excited to welcome Liz Wolf. Hey, we have the awesome Liz Wolf on today. She's from Cave Girl Eats and she's transitioning over her name to Real Food Liz. So she'll tell us about that. I met Liz when we went to the Weston A. Price Conference in Santa Clara in 2012 and she was just as wonderful and nice and beautiful as everyone says so I wasn't disappointed and I know she, she, she went to NTA which is Nutritional Therapy Association to be an NTP so she um, which is really really good program it's based on Weston A. Price principles and Lots of people, you know, they're, they come out of there really well-versed in lots of holistic therapies. And Liz is a, a, a wife, a military wife, and she's also recently a homesteader, so she'll tell us about that. And she has two books that that are really well-known, so The Skinnervention Guide, which is really popular uh, for for young girls and people who are battling skin conditions and acne. And then also her new book, which I'm sure is going to be a bestseller, is the Eat the Yolks. And so she's going to tell us about that. And she has a great way of making nutrition, boring nutrition <laughs> information humorous. So <laughs> everyone, I've been following all these Instagram dogs and cats and everything. So that's been keeping me laughing with that people take pictures of her book with their dogs and it's pretty cute <laughs> so, so welcome cute. liz hey thanks <laughs> thanks for having me on i'm i'm excited you're you were really nice just now <laughs> thank <laughs> you <laughs> i can be like that every once in a while you guys are so california I'm, I lived on the East Coast for like four years and used to dealing with Diane Sanfilippo, we, who, whom we all know and are friends with. And she's so East Coast. And I love talking to you guys because you're like, just California. You're just hanging out. Yeah, we're pretty cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so Liz, tell us kind of a little bit uh, the crunch version of your health journey and sort of what brought you to the place where you are now. Oh, my. Oh my. So, I kind of bounced around a lot. Um, I, I hear a lot of really amazing stories from people about how they, you know, came back from just the brink of these, um, life-threatening illnesses. For me, I, I've, I was one of those people that just kind of had a couple of nagging things going on my whole life that I never really connected with nutrition. And I think that's really common. So a lot of people don't realize how much nutrition can change their lives until they realize like, wow, I've had eczema since I was a kid. This is my story. I had eczema since I was little. I struggled with really weird and wonky skin issues, um, acne, and all kinds of strange stuff. was on a ton of topical medications for that. Begged my dermatologist to put me on Accutane, but thankfully that never happened. Dealt with really bad sleep and, and you know, some, some emotional, I think, a subclinical emotional, probably instability that really colored a lot of bad choices, um, for a couple of years in my life. And I just kind of thought that was, 
normal, I guess, because so many people around me were dealing with the same things. But for me, I I just kind of bounced around from thing to thing because not only did I not associate those issues with food, with what I was eating, but I also didn't realize what the difference was between being super skinny and being healthy. So for a really long time, all I wanted from my food was for it to make me really, really skinny. Um, and for me, that's not where my body naturally wants to be. I'm, I I mean, I have a YouTube channel. You can click over there and check out what I look like. I'm, I'm a pretty average sized gal. I have some curves. I, I like squatting and my butt likes squatting too. So, you know, I think that for me, I really conflated image with health and, you know, there's nothing wrong, of course, with being lean, with being skinny and all that, with being what your body naturally wants you to be in its fullest state of health. But I was not healthy when I was doing that. So I was a little, little all over the map there with that, but over time and with a shift in diet, I resolved all of my skin problems, which was amazing. Uh, even my dental issues from the time I was little, I had all kinds of dental work. I, it was really bad. I think I had two root canals by the time I was 16. So, you know, just managing all of that and just realizing that not only did that have to do with nutrition, but that it was also something that could be addressed with nutrition, which has been a really, really cool journey. Yeah, I especially like what you say about the fact that people who may be of average weight or underweight may not truly be healthy, and we do mm-hmm. sort of equate thin with beauty and health in our society. But, you know, what I hope and kind of I think all of us in this work and doing these podcasts are trying to educate people on what it really takes to be truly healthy and that uh, and it really does start with, you know, that connection between what you're eating and how you're feeling and how you look. I, I totally agree. And I think something that's really cool about what's coming out of this real food community right now is, you know, it started out, you know, paleo CrossFit and a lot of that physical culture stuff, that lean body type stuff. And what I've observed is that it's really evolving. Ha ha ha. Ha ha. Paleo jokes. Yeah, exactly. Paleo jokes into something where we're really fostering a discussion about like loving ourselves and the whole journey of getting well and separating that from physical culture and, you know, this lean and mean type paleo CrossFit movement, which I think is great for some people, but that's not the only way to tackle real food. And I'm really just, I'm glad that women like us that we're having this conversation because I think it's really, really important. Well, yeah, there's never a one size fits all approach is mm-hmm. kind of what my approach is. And, uh, and you know, with your books, we talked about skin intervention guide and eat the yolks. And I know I've personally recommended the skin intervention guide to many of my own clients who are struggling with skin issues and gut health issues and, that's a really good primer for transitioning to real food and, and also illustrative of how real food can heal. But tell us kind of what inspired you to write your second book, Eat the Yolks. Oh, man. <laughs> that was a that was really something. So I got this book deal probably three, more than three years ago. And at the time, I was thinking, oh, you know, I'm a 
I'll use the, the momentum, not so much from my professional, from my you know, professional side, because at that point I wasn't doing nutritional consultations. I wasn't doing the Balanced Bites podcast, but I was blogging my personal experiences with real food. And I thought, oh, I'll do a fun, sassy cave girl book and it'll be kind of a a sassy rebuttal to, I don't know if I can say it on the podcast, skinny. I don't know if I can say the second word. Yeah, I think that was, yeah, I think that was, that was a great idea. So this is sort of part, part of that. Yeah. I mean the, the, that vegan book, the, that is really kind of all about skinny, eat vegan food and be skinny, B I T. Right. Um, yeah. So that was kind of my idea. I'll be sassy and I'll make people laugh and I'll talk about real food. But the more I tried to write that book, which was originally titled Modern Cave Girl, the more I realized that there was a lot more that people needed to know. And as I started teaching with the Balanced Bites workshops, doing the Balanced Bites podcast, I started to realize the things that I thought were important went well beyond a sassy book called Modern Cave Girl. So I told the publisher I just couldn't write that book, but I wanted to I wanted to write a book called Eat the Yolks. And it was this amazing, just like sky heavens opening, you know, like angels singing, like, this is what I was meant to write. And <laughs> it, it was so, it was really fun, stressful, but it was fun to finish that. And I totally forgot the original question, but <laughs> like you said, Caitlin, I transitioned from Cave Girl Eats to Real Food Liz during this time. So kind of expanding that scope of paleo, what would cavemen do to what real food is really all about and all the myths and truths that we've got you know, can be all the myths that we've been told for years about food. That's what I wanted to tackle. So why do you think, I've heard that this book's really popular with, with older folks. So what, why do you think that is? I, I've actually heard that too. It's so crazy that you say that the, uh, the publisher sent me a message saying, you know, I've been publishing paleo books for years and my parents, my mom never, you know, cared about it at all, wasn't interested in it. And she went into her room with your book and didn't come out until she was done. And we could hear her laughing in her room. And she came out and she said, this book is going to cost us dearly because we're only shopping at Whole Foods now. <laughs> but uh, but she, she bought into it. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that our parents and our grandparents came of age and grew up in a time when real food, like especially the kind of natural foods that contain natural saturated fat and cholesterol started to be really demonized in the mainstream. So that started happening in the 1950s and 60s, and it really spun out of control in the 1980s. So those generations, and that includes my generation, were really kind of fed literally a bunch of lies for many, many years. And surprise, surprise, they got sicker and sicker and rates of disease, especially chronic like lifestyle disease went through the roof. So I think that just addressing their very specific concerns in a, in the way that I did with the big hunk of, of book devoted to cholesterol myths and saturated fat and fat in general, and then moving on from there, I, I guess it's just contextualizing things and answering the exact questions that that maybe they have, but it's pretty amazing to hear that people's parents are buying into this book, especially with all of the obscure pop culture references that I threw in there. 
That's pretty cool. Well, that's actually, that's pretty genius is making something applicable to all age ranges. And, you know, I think a lot of older folks probably don't think that, you know, the newfangled fads that everybody's doing right now, whether it's vegan or paleo or whatever they think is a fad, they more resonate towards just eating real food. And that's kind of what it's all about at the end of the day, no matter what you call it, really. Exactly. I think that's why paleo is sticking so much. Cause that's what it's about. And if we can just expand that conversation, like we're really just talking about real food makes yeah. it easier. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what do you think kind of, you know, we were talking about suddenly what was the shift away from eating real food to being afraid of eating egg yolks and cholesterol and you know, that whole movement. What, what do you think really in your opinion is kind of the, the starting point for all that? I totally blame the margarine industry. (laughs) I really do. It's so funny because I really can, as I was writing this book and researching the history of the development of margarine worldwide, I kept being like, that's why we have factory farmed beef. That's why we have canola oil. It really does. I swear I can trace it all back to margarine. And so, (laughs) so really, I think one of the biggest issues with nutrition science up through the 1950s into the 1980s and and beyond was that we were lumping saturated fats and trans fats into one group to look at health outcomes. So we know now that trans fats are just universal poisons. Basically they're man-made fats. It's, it's a, a fat in a molecular structure that exists nowhere in nature when they're actually made through that industrial process. And we started using trans fats in the 1900s. It goes way back. And the development of margarine, which was actually a response to a shortage of butter, like basically in Europe, they needed to approximate the nutrition value of butter, but the cows weren't giving milk because there was a drought. You you guys know everything about drought living out there. It really does affect the entire food supply. So when margarine was first developed, it was made out of beef fat and skim milk. But over time that caught on and they ran out of beef fat. And then they decided to start using seed oils like coconut oil. And then they figured out a way to hydrogenate fat, basically making a solid fat out of a liquid fat with a chemical industrial process and basically started feeding people trans fats and all of the byproduct of these vegetable oils, the the protein from these, say, canola seeds, soybeans, corn, cottonseed, that went to the first factory farms. So it's all connected in a really sad way. Not to mention it's cheap. Exactly. It's a cheap, and it was really kind of the first globalization of our food supply. I mean, I talk about all the bad science and the poorly interpreted science and eat the yolks. But one of the things I didn't talk about as much as I wanted to was the globalization of our food supply. I think all three of us are, are passionate about local food and, you know, going to the farm market and supporting local producers and local farmers. But the margarine industry was really the first to start establishing global, um, centers of commerce because they, they started, um, basically building seed oil, um, industry in Asian and African regions for export for the margarine trade. 
So it's crazy. It's just crazy how it all works. Boring, right? No, not at all. I mean, do you think there was also like any kind of government conspiracy that started this fear of fat and cholesterol? Oh man, I have quite honestly, I don't think people got together and were like, let's take all the egg yolks and throw them away, you know, (laughs) but there is a lot of evidence of I don't know if the collusion is the right word, but there are a lot of old letters that you can go back through and read between concerned scientists and people at the FDA, people on the Senate Select Committee for Nutrition and Human Needs, um, Senator George McGovern, who is a big, big player in establishing some dietary guidelines for the United States. You can actually read these letters and, and these concerned scientists, particularly this guy who is amazing. He's 99 now, and he's still an activist for real food. He's a professor, I think, at the University of, ay, 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 I'm going to forget, Indiana, Illinois. He, Fred Cummerow, he was writing letters to basically say, we are completely ignoring the danger of trans fats and you're allowing these to be incorporated in the American diet and completely ignoring their dangers. And this was in the 1960s. So there really is some pretty profound evidence that people were kind of getting together to push the dietary guidelines in the direction that would be most profitable for them. It's pretty scary. Well, that's hitting the nail on the head is it's about profit over public health in a lot of that, in a lot of those situations. And I always tell people never to take advice about nutrition from the government. So Mm -hmm. there's rule number one, but I wanted to talk about kind of the poorly interpreted scientific studies, because as you know, Every, I don't know, year or two, the huge meat causes cancer studies surface. And why do you think these studies keep cropping up and scaring everyone? I have no idea why they keep cropping up. Maybe now they keep cropping up. What's that? I said it's like cyclical. They come Yeah, it is. Year or so. (laughs) It's totally cyclical. And I think at one point, maybe it was before the whole paleo thing became the most searched diet, the most Googled diet of 2013. I think when that hit over the last like four years leading up to 2013, when it was the most Googled diet, I think that's when these things started cropping up probably as a direct response out of fear of this new real food movement. So I think that's part of what's going on now. I think it's a, I think it's, you know, first they laugh at you and then they, what? I tell you. <laughs> yeah. And then they believe you. And then they agree with you. Right. Yeah. And then they agree with you. But before that, I think, um, it was more a, a, a sense of maybe confirmation bias where it's like, well, yeah, we already believe this, but let's just kind of throw it out there again, just to be sure everybody still knows what the propaganda is. But over the last five 10 years with a lot of the work that some of these people are doing, I think it really is a response to this really loud collective voice that we have right now. That's that we're saying our food system needs to be changed. We need to localize our food system. We need to know the difference between say factory farmed meat and pasture raised meat. And we need to know the difference between canola oil and butter and why one is good and one is not. It's, but it's, it's frustrating, but it's also encouraging because we have so many really smart people like you guys, like Chris Kresser, like 
Rob Wolf and Chris Masterjohn, who are literally just like ready to just slap these things down, like in succession. <laughs> well, I, one of the, the greatest points I think that Rob Wolf always discusses that's so important is it's it's really difficult to perform studies on humans because yes, as he regularly points out, I mean most people can't remember what they ate for their last meal and. It's also impossible to do like quality control. Like, are they eating? Yeah. If you're eating three McDonald's hamburgers a day, perhaps you will have a higher incidence of cancer, but you know, where are studies on people eating clean grass fed meat and people also, you know, have this, this image in mind that paleo means that you are eating, you know, tons of meat throughout the day. And there are also, you know, antioxidant rich plant-based foods that we're consuming as well. And You know, so people, there's a lot of sensationalism and people get very easily swept away without really doing some critical thinking and looking at elements of studies and how they're put together and confirmation bias. And you you can very easily construct a study to give the outcome that you want. (laughs) That's literally what some of these clinical research groups do. They basically say, we can get the results you want. Hire us to conduct your study. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. But um, always... The big thing that they don't ever take into account is vegetarians often are healthier or, you know, quote unquote healthier. Um, but a lot of times people who have the wherewithal to be vegetarian are a much higher socioeconomic class. And when you have more money, you're most likely going to be healthier just in general. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think what you're saying too is people who are interested in becoming vegetarians are also interested in living healthier lifestyles. So they're not drinking or smoking or, you know, they're drinking tea and they're doing yoga and they're doing other lifestyle factors that are, you know, lending. And they, they probably are eating a lot of plants. And that's honestly what really contributes to health. It's different for everyone, but you need a lot of antioxidants and plants. And, you know, obviously we don't, you know, I think most people, if not all, have a need for healthy proteins and fats as well. But, But yeah, I mean, that's a valid point for sure. But, you know, speaking of too, why do specifically, I mean, why are cholesterol and fat not the problem when it comes to long-term health? Because they're really critical for long-term health, which is... And and it's not even just the, the fats and cholesterol themselves. It's also the foods the real natural whole foods that they're packaged in. So for example, if we're talking about egg yolks, which have, you know, a pretty good whack of cholesterol in there, not only do you have cholesterol, which is a precursor to all of our hormones, but we also have choline, vitamin A, and a bunch of other nutrients that are really, really supportive of health. And then if you have like a steak from a grass fed cow, you've got really appetite regulating saturated fats. You've got more vitamin A, you've got iron, you've got zinc, you've got complete protein, B12, all of those things that we need that even the most vegetarian of vegetarians understands that we need those nutrients, I hope. And they all come together in one place. And my opinion is that happens for a reason. I think that's a huge argument for why we're omnivores and not herbivores. Also the fact that we have completely different digestive machinery from herbivores, but we don't have to talk about that today, but that's (laughs) one of the reasons, one of just one of the reasons. 
so when you um so tell us exactly why the like some people think about the protein and the yolks in and then they think oh it's the best it's fat free and it has lots of tell us why all the nutrition is really in the, the yolk it's it, because the yolk is it's basically there to feed the baby chicks so all of the nutrition. So a lot of people think that the yolk like turns into the chicken, which is <laughs> not, I'm telling you the number of people that think that it's, it's stunning. And actually I probably thought that at one point, but what the yolk is there for is to provide nutrition for the baby chick if the egg is fertilized. So it is just by nature, like one of the most nutrient rich things we can possibly eat. That's, I mean, that's pretty simple. And then the reason I think a lot of people are maybe sensitive to the egg white, but not the egg yolk is because the white, like a lot of different protective mechanisms that exist in nature, the white kind of protects that nutrition. The white is actually fairly dense in anti-nutrient, um, what is it? What is it called? Why am I, why am I blanking on it? What's, what do we have in the egg white? There's one that's alphadin. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It's so many anti-nutrients. I can't keep them all straight. (laughs) They're to protect the yolk. So yeah, there's some protein in there, but it's not, gosh, when people throw away the egg yolks and they just eat the egg whites, I'm just thinking you're literally eating like a, a protective substance. You're not eating anything that's going to impart a whole lot of nutrition to your body. There might be protein in there and that's cool, but even the B12 content in, in eggs in egg whites is, is pretty poorly assimilated. So not that I have a problem with egg whites. It's just, I would never choose one over the yolk. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up Avidin and the anti-nutrient issue. We talk a lot about that on the show and that's always the tragedy. I think any real food proponent cringes slightly when they see someone eating egg whites. And, and I always just ask, why? Why are yeah. you eating the white and not the yolk? And everybody kind of looks puzzled and they are not really sure. Yeah. One. Or number two, they say, well, I know the yolks are bad for me and they're going to raise my cholesterol. And I'm always like, oh, sometimes it just feels like two steps forward and one back. But it really does. But again, that's, that's why we're on here talking about this, spreading the word so that we can finally allow for this paradigm shift. And, and speaking of that too, you know, you're, you went from being cave girl eats to real food. And so tell us why the name of your new blog and why you're kind of doing this shift away from kind of more paleo to real food. Well, paleo is definitely my roots. That's where I that's where I come from a hundred percent. And I, I don't eat gluten. I don't eat, I think most importantly, I don't eat processed food. I don't eat processed oils. I don't eat, I don't eat junk. And I think that's probably 95, 90, maybe 99% of the battle for most people is just getting rid of the junk and focusing on real food. And during this whole journey, from cave girl eats to real food, Liz, I think what was going on in my head was, okay, I started out, you know, in kind of the paleo CrossFit world, adopted the paleo thing, stuck with it, really started building upon it and building, you know, my nutrition practice because of that. And, and realizing that the problem 
is not so much whether or not a person is eating potatoes, you know, and people love to argue about dumb stuff, like whether potatoes are paleo, but when we should really be talking about number one, in my opinion, how, how number one, how do we get good food to at risk populations who have no access or information for getting really good nourishing food, like say underprivileged kids, And the other question is, how can we support local food systems that are producing really healthy, nourishing food properly that can supply, you know, smaller groups of people across different regions rather than continuing to centralize this food supply? Because, you know, the way we talk about paleo now, we talk about quality grass-fed beef, for example. But when this whole thing started, people weren't talking about that. I was getting, you know, factory farmed beef for $2.99 a pound at Safeway. And I didn't know that there was a difference, but there is a difference. And that's what's important because once you start talking about what makes food nourishing or not nourishing, what supports a sustainable food system versus what doesn't, what we're really talking about is properly raised animals and vegetables and plants grown in nutrient rich soil, kind of the same wavelength there. We're also talking about like the decentralization of our food system. You always hear people say that this much meat production isn't sustainable. Well, I would have to agree that supplying the entire United States with meat from factory farms from my home state of Kansas is neither sustainable nor does it smell very good. I don't like driving past all of the factory farms in my whole home state, the feedlots and stuff like that. But agricultural production of grains is not sustainable for feeding the animals in those feedlots. It's just a messed up paradigm. So the whole point, whether you're vegetarian or omnivore or paleo or whatever you call yourself, is just knowing the truth about food and starting to feed yourself a little bit differently so we can push the dial in the right direction. And I've noticed there's so much more access to grass-fed beef, even, you know, I was back in Tennessee, and there seemed like there was so much more access to it than there was five years ago. Yes, 100% agree. So I feel like it's becoming more and more available, and you just have to get your feelers out a little bit and, and, and talk to people, and you can find it. And I feel like more and more people are are looking for it, so it's mm-hmm. becoming a little bit more affordable as well. And that's probably what you're you're talking talking about. The the more we buy it, the more the demand is there. The price comes down, you know, and it becomes more available to everyone. And the consciousness is raised about the need for it. And hopefully, right. it comes off the black market, and people don't have to go <laughs> underground to buy. The the biggest tragedy, I think, is you can raise your own cows and love them every day and talk to them and commune with them, but then you have to, by USDA regulation, ship them, you know, to a USDA-regulated slaughterhouse where they're basically, you know, standing next to cows that come from factory farms. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what, honestly, the legislation, legislation is state by state, but I know that is a law in California. And so, you know, many farmers are doing these illegal slaughters and people are coming to their farms and they're totally trying to conceal their identities and they're buying this meat, which has been raised and humanely slaughtered the way that animals are meant to cycle through life. And it's all kind of under the underground, which is sort of distressing. 
I do hope that that changes. I, I think that a few subversive people who are willing to do that. I, my, my, I used to drive like an hour and a half to get grass fed meat and raw milk over, over the border from New Jersey and Pennsylvania because it was legal there and realizing how many people were kind of doing some like civil disobedience (laughs) just to get the nourishing food that they have a right to get. Um, it, it was a little crazy, but it was also a little bit encouraging because I do, you know, I'm hoping, hoping fingers crossed that, that as we continue to do that and these things become maybe a little more even trendy, you know, because I think the the trendy restaurant scene is a really good way to kind of see which way the dial is, is like, you know, going, you, you see, you know, roasted bone marrow and local, local eggs and local beef and all of this stuff at the local restaurant scene. And the more we see that, I think the more we're integrating local commerce with food policy and maybe that's what's going to push the dial. You know what I mean? Kind of, kind of getting a little, little in deep there, but I love to see that. The nose to tail and and people now realizing that we've been throwing out the best parts of the animal and we become so disconnected from using the whole animal and all of the nourishing parts. And so that, that is, especially out here in California, hopefully that catches on. I know it's kind of on both coasts, but hopefully in flyover country, it kind of catches on too. <laughs> flyover country. I like that. But, uh, you know, speaking of raising animals, tell us kind of why you transitioned into homesteading and why that appeals to you. Well, I use the term homesteading loosely. I, I feel bad. Like I didn't just move to a farm and start calling my, well, I did move to a farm and start calling myself a homesteader, but whatever, fake it till you make it right. Um, the whole, the whole diet and lifestyle shift that started years back for me led me to really want to learn what it takes to produce and raise my own food. So we are far from self-sufficient. We are literally, we've spent the last year basically on our heels, trying not to fall over because the responsibilities that we've taken on have been so huge. And we knew that going in, we bought 15 acres. We've got a barn, we've got goats, pigs, chickens, guinea fowl. We're trying to do things naturally. And we had absolutely no idea how hard it was going to be, but but the idea was we want to learn what it takes to produce the most nourishing food possible because we felt like it's time people maybe start talking about self-reliance a little bit more because the fact is our, our food system, as we know it, our industrial food system is unsustainable. And it's also in some cases kind of dangerous. Like you were saying, good grass fed beef has to be slaughtered alongside factory farmed animals that are really, really sick and in turn can make us sick. So we just wanted to see what that was all about. So what we're doing is really pushing for self-sufficiency. We are amateur wannabe homesteaders. So when we say homesteading, let's put a little asterisk there (laughs) because we suck at it, but we're trying really, really hard. (laughs) That's funny. So what kind of challenges, like a couple of things that you've faced? Well, 
from the very beginning, we kind of thought, hey, we'll get the goats and we'll have goat's milk and we'll have eggs and we'll have meat chickens and all this stuff. But we we bought this place in the winter when nothing was growing, nothing was happening. It was just land with a barn. And we got there in the spring and everything was growing and all of the ticks and all of the poison ivy and all of the crazy plants that grow when the, you know, the lawn service isn't coming to landscape your lawn. I mean, they will eat you, these plants. They will eat you. It's painful. And so basically we were standing there like, I have no idea how to deal with this except for with chemicals and herbicides and pesticides. And if I see one more tick, I'm going to spray all of the chemicals everywhere and forget this whole homesteading thing. I'm over it. But what we really learned was the symbiosis between people and animals and plants is incredibly profound. And we've been basically living outside of it our entire lives. But what we learned was that animals like goats will get great nourishment eating things like poison ivy. It does not affect them. They absolutely love it. So we, we've learned how to deal with these issues naturally. And it's taken such a long time and it's been really frustrating, but it's been really enlightening too. So rather than using say machines and herbicides, we've got two goats that absolutely love to chow down on all of this overgrowth. They don't seem to be phased by these crazy, you know, human eating plants. And then we've got guinea fowl and chickens that absolutely love to eat ticks and poop and fertilize the soil. And that's been the lesson so far is that we can kind of harmonize with this whole situation or we can fight it. And it's just not, not worth fighting. (laughs) I'm wondering, did you notice any changes? Like, you know how we're so separated from our natural world did you notice any changes in yourself like did you feel more connected or less stressed or anything by being with nature I felt (laughs) so for the first two weeks when we moved in like right before tick season started I was like walking around outside barefoot just like loving communing with, you know, grounding with nature and sitting on the front porch and looking out at the pasture in front of us with all the grass fed cows and just, you know, thinking profound thoughts. And then, you know, all of a sudden we're infested with beetles and ticks and it starts raining so much that basically our house started falling down. And it was that point where I was like, what? did I do? (laughs) This is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. And I kid you not, I work from home. I probably stayed in our room upstairs in our bed, like on my own little Island. So because I was convinced, I was like, the ticks can't get up the stairs and into the bed. There's no way they can get up here. So I'm just going to stay up here. (laughs) Somebody else is going to fix this for me. But I felt really scattered and disconnected and fearful and regretful. And I felt all the feelings for a really long time. And I think that turned out to be a good thing because I think maybe I've carved out new pathways in my brain a little bit. I think I've developed a little bit more resilience. I've developed more willingness, maybe more spunk. Um, and it's been a, it's been a process of, you know, I, I identified what mattered to me before we moved out to this homestead. I, I, 
identified what I wanted for myself, but I didn't really understand what it was going to take. And now I'm learning what it's going to take. And it's been a growing process and I'm coming to terms with realizing that I can't do all of the things. Like I can't do all of the blogging, podcasting, writing, you know, digital stuff that I want to do because our internet is terrible. (laughs) Um, and, and really make a go of this homesteading thing. So it's been a slow transition of how can I balance all of the normal digital stuff with what I really want to do, which is to work with my hands, grow my own food, be one of those people. So it's, it's ongoing. You know, I wish I had like a book of lessons to hand <laughs> out, you know, cause that could be maybe book number two, but it's been, it's been hard. I'm sure there are a lot of people laughing at me right now. Like could have told you this is not going to be easy, but <laughs> so now what would your advice be on how to get started homesteading now that you've gone through what you've gone through, or maybe you should save this for your book. Maybe I should, but I, I honestly, I don't know. I mean, sometimes you just have to start. You just have to do it and figure it out later. Say yes, figure it out later. But also I think maybe trying to learn how to garden in my backyard in Cherry Hill, New Jersey might've been a good place to start. Before you you bought a property. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Before I bought 15 acres. Maybe make some tomato plants. (laughs) Do you ever feel isolated? I mean, how far are you from other people? (laughs) We're not that far. I mean, we are, you mentioned my husband's in the military. So we are at a a military base that's kind of in the boondocks and we're about a half an hour from there. So, and maybe an hour from Kansas city. So, and I grew up in Kansas city, so it's kind of like home, but man, I, I, to this point, I actually really enjoy solitude because I am an introvert. I was an English major in college. I really like reading and reflection and things like that. So I like, I like being out here. And the fact that I'm talking to people on the internet all day long, every day is it really keeps you from feeling isolated because my parents, you know, my parents, my husband thought the same thing. Like if you're at the homestead, sometimes for even a week at a time without going anywhere, aren't you, aren't you feeling like a hermit? Like, aren't you going to become one of those weird hoarders? Like, you know, whatever. (laughs) I know. Right. It sounds awesome to me too, but no, I mean, I am doing podcasts. I'm on the internet with people and that's the great thing about the internet, but it's also, you know, it's been tough to strategize tearing myself away from that when I can. So yeah, that's, that's been the the isolation part. But then again, I, I we have direct TV, so <laughs> I've got a DVR. I've got all my reality TV friends. <laughs> all, all you need are some goats and a DVR and you're good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, we don't want to keep you for too long, but tell us, uh, you know, we, we know you wrote the skin intervention guide too. any, any quick tips for, you know, people to get started. That's one of the biggest complaints I hear in helping people with nutrition and in my practice is skin issues. Do you have any just quick tips that would help someone getting started on the path to healing? Yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I think that, you know, if you're not 
on the real food yet, if you're not on that drug, the real food drug, that's definitely the most important thing just to pull out the processed food and stick to real whole nourishing foods. So basically nothing out of a box or a bag, just, just start there. But I also think one of the, the most important thing to do is to just take a couple of days eating normally and and evaluate whether you have some weird digestive stuff going on. Because when you've got, say, the tendency to burp a lot after a meal or have indigestion or have irritable bowel situations or constipation or diarrhea or whatever, that's a sign that nutrients are probably not getting absorbed, meaning nutrients can't get where they need to go. And your skin is is pretty demanding of nutrition. So if you're not absorbing and digesting well, that's the only way to get nutrients where they need to go. I think that's, I think that's what I'm thinking these days, but this is a, that's a really good question. And something that I've been thinking about giving people a starting point just to assess what might be going on. Because for some people, it's not even about what they're eating. It's about whether they're actually absorbing it. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. And that's what the guide is about. So the whole reason I, I put the guide together and was because I got into natural skincare. I, you know, healed my skin with natural food, digestive approach and a natural skincare topical approach, but I couldn't answer the same questions kind of over and over again. Someone would leave a comment on this blog post and asking the same question as someone on that blog post. So I basically needed to put in one place all the nutrition information, all the digestive healing information, and all the topical stuff that I knew because all of those things go hand in hand. You can't just start using you know, this topical thing that's natural and expect it to heal a problem that is digestive or nutrient-based. So that's why I put all those things together. Well, yeah, the guide is beautiful, and I know my assistant, actually, she, so cute, she got your book because she had some sort of horrible rash all over her face, like it just came out of nowhere, and for some reason she had access to your guide, like, this was, you know, way before I knew her or anything, and that totally got her into paleo changed her whole life and now her skin is perfect and um so she, and she's so she now she's hardcore you know that is so cool yeah and she's she actually was a fan and she just wrote me like i heard you needed an assistant <laughs> so um she's really cute but um I know that book would be great for any young girl or anyone who's suffering with and I mean I know some people have acne into their forties and so um, <laughs> yes it'd be really helpful. Thank now, you. At, <laughs> thank you for doing this. <laughs> so, at the end of your book, you have and it, also on your blog I've seen it before. You have this thing you've written a hundred nutrition in a hundred words. It's kind of like Michael Pollan's little tiny book. So tell us more about that. Nutrition in a hundred words is a little shareable that I wrote with Steve's paleo goods. So folks that know me know that I'm involved with Steve's paleo goods and Steve's club national program. You can, you can Google those there. Steve's club is an amazing program and it kind of throws back to what I was talking about earlier about getting good nourishing food and mentorship and all that good stuff to at risk kids. So 
basically Steve, the head caveman, Steve was like, Liz, I really think you should encapsulate what you think about nutrition in a hundred words. I think people would really respond to it. And I was like, dude, I don't know how to be brief. Like that is not my strong suit. I had to write an 80,000 word book and what, like 200 some pages of Skinnervention guide just to tell people to eat real food, watch your digestion and don't use crap on your skin. I mean, come on, like I, I'm not good at it, but I did it and it's, I, I think it pretty much tackles most of, you know, the important points. You can feel free to read it or post it or whatever if you want to, but uh, yeah, that's kind of the development of it. That's that, that, yeah, that's a, a tall order. It was. But it, that would take me probably hours. It's so funny how something so brief takes you longer than something that is more. I know. Yeah. yeah. It took me several weeks, quite honestly. <laughs> but I was going to say, it probably would take me that same amount of time, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think as you learn more about, you know, as you expand on paleo, I think, you know, we first maybe learned about paleo, but then through going to nutrition school and everything, we learned about nutrient-dense diets and how to kind of add all that together. And, you know, you you realize that you, you don't just want lean chicken breasts, like you and Diane always say, broccoli and coconut oil. You know? Right. <laughs> so um, that's a great way to help people with that nutrition in 100 words or less. So, Liz, tell people where they can find your new books and your skin guide and everything. You can come to realfoodliz.com, cavegirleats.com also redirects there. And everything is kind of in one place there. You can find the skin intervention guide. You can find the link to that. You can find the link to the Balanced Bites podcast, which I do with Diane Sanfilippo weekly, the link to my book, or you can, if you want to know more about the book, head over to eattheyolks.com which you can get like a 20 page preview of the introduction. You can get my resource guide and kind of see what it's all about from there as well. Well, I know it's going to help a lot of people and we appreciate you being on our show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. And I know your book has already helped a lot of people. So, um, everybody get out there and check it out. And, and thanks again. Of course. Thank you guys guys for the support. Truly truly means the world. So get excited about our upcoming guests. We have Evelyn Lambrecht talking about how to find quality supplements. And Civilized Caveman is coming up talking about his new book with Paleo OMG. So please leave us a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your family and friends. We'll see you next time. Thank you.